1: Peter Beinart has spent the last couple of weeks thinking a lot about elections. As an American, sure, he was anxious going into our midterms last week. But as an Orthodox Jew, it was the Israeli elections that alarmed him. I mean, how closely were you f- watching the election in Israel?
0: Quite closely, especially in the last couple of weeks um, as the really things came to a head.
1: Legislative elections in Israel wrapped up just a few days before our own. Going into this contest, it seemed like the results were on a razor's edge.
0: But then in something tipped um, in the closing days and because of the peculiarities of the system, um, then the way voting was distributed, Benjamin Netanyahu and his right wing, his extremely right wing coalition, his unprecedentedly right wing religious coalition actually ended up with a very large victory.
1: Peter calls this coalition unprecedentedly right-wing for good reason. To cobble together a government, Benjamin Netanyahu forged alliances with political leaders so militant they were previously shunned. But looking closely at this group, Peter was struck by something else, how ideologically consistent it was. All of Israel's new political leaders agree. Jewish dominance—Peter calls it Jewish supremacy— is a fundamental building block of the state of Israel. The only thing they quibble about is how strictly to enforce that supremacy on their Palestinian neighbors. One of Israel's newest leaders, a man named Itamar Ben-Gavir, he's argued the only way forward for Israel is to expel Palestinians who are insufficiently loyal.
0: What's striking about this election is the rise of political forces that don't see Jewish supremacy as secure and stable. The Israeli center thinks that Jewish supremacy is doing fine and can be maintained by doing roughly the same kind of things. What you see with the rise of these radical figures like Itamar Ben-Gavir and his Jewish power party is Ben-Gavir is saying It's actually not stable, and the only way to maintain it is by either deporting, expelling Palestinians from Israel, or at least threatening to do so, so that they remain utterly subservient. That's actually the fundamental divide in between Israel, but in the right and the center. It's not about whether Israel should be a country that privileges Jews over Palestinians. It's about whether you should actually deport Palestinians from the country. That's really how extreme that argue, the argument is.
1: It's interesting because I get the sense you'd agree that the current situation is unstable, but deeply disagree with how to fix it.
0: No, I actually think tragically it is quite stable. Um, it's stable because there is almost no international pressure on Israel to change its behavior, including from a democratic administration, which gives Israel unconditional military aid and protects Israel in international forms like the UN. It's stable because Israel is a technologically dynamic country that many countries want to be engaged in. And it's it's stable because the palestinian leadership is divided and weak and in the west bank actually collaborates with israel to make it easier for israel to maintain control and it's striking to me that even in that situation you have the rise of politicians who actually want to go much further again towards a politics of mass expulsion
1: today on the show well israel's extreme new government push the rest of the world to reckon with what this country's doing. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person, Anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Part of the reason this election was so surprising is that Benjamin Netanyahu has been incredibly divisive in Israel. He is still on trial for corruption, and it was widespread outrage at Netanyahu's graft that got him kicked out of office in the first place. The problem is that the coalition that replaced him made for strange bedfellows. It included the leader of an Arab party and a hardline conservative, among others. In other words, there was no shared political belief here. Peter Beinart says that's where the trouble began.
0: The idea was that there was a desperate desire to get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu, who people felt, um, I think rightly, that Netanyahu was actually corrupting the Israeli political and legal system, even for Jews. Right. And so in that way, there was an analogy to Trump, which you see a guy who was willing to bend the rules, overturn previously existing norms in a way that people ex- found frightening. Now, it's important to remember those rules and norms never really existed that well for Palestinians, but they were th- starting to threaten what Israel, Israel is a liberal democracy, even for Jews. And so you were able to as, get together this very wide coalition, you say, from the right to the center, which also had for the first time in Israel, an Islamist, small Islamist Arab party just to get Netanyahu out. The problem was that the coalition was not ideologically coherent um, and that it had no real margin for error. So eventually it couldn't sustain itself when a few people for particular reasons decided to defect.
1: That's how earlier this month, the country headed into its fifth election in three years. This time, Netanyahu formed his own coalition, three parties under one umbrella. Many are calling it the furthest right government in Israel's history.
0: And it turned out that there were enough people who were willing to bring Benjamin Netanyahu back, even if some of them might have found him distasteful. Again, I think we can see a little bit of an analogy with Trump here. They might have thought, okay, maybe he's a little corrupt, but we have an ideological agenda and he is our vehicle to putting that in place.
1: Yeah. When I read about how Israeli politicians were campaigning for office in this election, it sounded pretty similar to me to the way people in the U.S. were campaigning this year, like using fear, talking about public safety as a big issue. Can you explain that?
0: Yes. So something that... In retrospect, turns out to have been very important to this election. Was you may remember that last spring, the spring of 2021, uh, violence erupted originally over um, the Temple Mount, this area that is sacred to, to Jews and Muslims. And then there was rocket fire from Hamas in Gaza. And then most shocking to Israelis, um, particularly Israeli Jews, was violence that broke out not in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem, but in Israel proper, in mixed, what are called mixed cities and cities that have both Jewish and Palestinian populations. By day, there's an uneasy quiet in Lod. But it's not hard to find reminders that this is no longer a peaceful place. Arabs and Jews who share this city now trading blows. And the vast majority of arrests arrests from these civil conflicts, just as they tend to fall, the vast majority of people who were arrested in this violence were Palestinians. But people like Itamar Ben-Gavir, we're able to use this as a threat to say, look what's happening. It's not just that Palestinians are who are in the West Bank and Gaza are threatening us, but Palestinian citizens here inside Israel proper are threatening us. And we have to either expel them from the country or at least. Frighten them so much with the threat of expulsion, with much harsher police tactics, that they will never be willing to rise up again. Um, And it is that that is part of the context that allowed Ben Gavir uh, to make this progress and ultimately to become Israel's third largest party.
1: Yeah, let's talk about Ben Gavir, because he's one of the sort of legs of the stool of this coalition that Benjamin Netanyahu formed. Ben Gavir, he leads this Jewish power party, and he's been a known person in the political world for a long time. But I wonder if you thought he would reach this kind of height of power, because now he's being spoken of as, you know, he's going to be part of the cabinet. He's going to be a real leader in the government. And I wonder if you anticipated that rise.
0: No, I really didn't. Um, It it is an extraordinary story given how marginal um, he and the people around him were. I mean, Itamar Ben-Gavir was not allowed to serve in the Israeli army because he had been arrested so many times. Uh, And he was really on the, he was on the edges of uh, basically of of groups of terrorists, of Jewish terrorists. So for instance, Ben-Gavir has, um, was a disciple of the late Rabbi Meir Kahana, whose party in the 1980s was banned from Israel because it called for the expulsion of all Palestinians. It also called for the um, making marriage and sexual relations illegal between Jews and Palestinians, a very, very openly, crudely racist and fascist tradition. This man was, was very much on the political margins, and as we've seen in other places, has moved quite rapidly from the margins to near the center of Israeli politics, and he did so with Netanyahu's support. In fact, Netanyahu was a critical patron because there were basically three small right-wing parties that were knitted together to create the one larger party that did so well in this election, and Netanyahu brokered that marriage, which is part of what has made them such an important player.
1: So what does a coalition government with someone like Ben-Gavir and Netanyahu, of course, too, at its center, have as their platform. You've said that they're ideologically consistent. That's an advantage they have over the last coalition government. So what are these folks going to be trying to accomplish?
0: One thing that a lot of people speculate about is that what Netanyahu needs, above all else, is to get out of his corruption trials. He needs some kind of law passed um, to, to basically make these corruption trials, or at least some of them, go away.
1: It's remarkable to me that they're ongoing.
0: Yes, they are ongoing. It, to Israel's credit, Israel does have a, a long a long history, a kind of legal apparatus that actually goes after its prime ministers for corruption.
1: But it doesn't keep them from running.
0: No, it doesn't keep them. In fact, what many people suggest is a kind of a trade in which Netanyahu gets some legal relief. He would trade this for some things that the right wing, the far right wing in his coalition wants. What are those things? One thing I think they would like is to um, reduce the influence of the Israeli judiciary because the Israeli judiciary sometimes can limit the Israeli state to some degree. Since the 90s, Israeli courts have become more influential and they have been a force, I would say sometimes just modest degrees in in restraining the state um, and protecting protecting individual rights. And and Ben-Gavir wants to, he basically wants to really limit the independence of the judiciary.
1: Some Palestinians are worried that Ben-Gavir is aiming to change the status quo at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That is a key holy site for both Islam and Judaism.
0: Now, what that means briefly is essentially that Jews pray at the Western wall below the Temple Mount and above that on the Temple Mount that has historically been reserved for Muslim prayer. That's where you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. What Ben-Gavir wants is essentially to make it much easier for Israeli Jews to go up and start establishing a presence on the Temple Mount itself which for Palestinians raises the specter of essentially them being kicked out of that territory. That might seem paranoid and conspiratorial to many Jews, but remember, there have been already two mass expulsions of Palestinians since Israel's creation in 1948 and 1967.
1: Well, and so many clashes have revolved around the Temple Mount. One
0: of the holiest and hotly contested places of worship in the world, a bitter confrontation after Israeli forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is the most incendiary, some people say it's the most incendiary place in the world, right? And one of the bitter ironies of Ben-Gavir's rise, I remember, remember I said he benefited a lot from the violence that broke out in May. You know who's one of the people who lit that match? Oh no. Itamar ben gavir because he's been one of the people who has been most aggressive in changing the status quo on the Temple Mount.
1: So he's creating chaos and then benefiting from it.
0: it that's exactly right, which I think is something that demagogues have have done, you know, for through time and memoriam. And it's a very frightening situation because the Temple Mount is already always a powder keg, but beyond that because violence has already been rising in the West Bank. Palestinians in the West Bank are, are desperate. They see no horizon for them to get basic rights. They're completely fed up with the Palestinian Authority. And there's been rising armed resistance already in the West Bank. It's been one of the most violent years in the West Bank in the last decade. And now you've got an Israeli government that's going to come in with the hammer of even more brutal, unrestrained force. And I think it leads to the possibility of, of just terrible violence.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've laid out the way especially Ben-Gavir, talks about controlling the population of Palestinians in really upsetting ways. Talks about expelling them, even Israel's own citizens who are Palestinian, if they're disloyal. And it raises this question, like, who gets to decide who disloyal is? What does that look like?
0: Right. And it also raises, I would say, an even more basic problem with the nature of the state, right? The whole state is built around the needs and interests of Jews, not the needs and interests and identity of Palestinians. Well, of course, you're going to be a little bit disloyal, right? I mean, Loyalty, it, most people are loyal to countries when they feel like those countries actually give them an equal shot, or at least give them equality under the law. So Ben-Gavir is essentially saying to Palestinians, unless you show utter subservience to a political system that de- denies you equality, then we're going to respond to that by basically coming down on you with a hammer and maybe even expelling you. And he says he only wants to dis- to expel disloyal Palestinians of citizens of Israel, but he has a very capacious definition of that because he put up a, a po- they put up a billboard during the campaign in which they showed the faces of the two most popular Palestinian politicians in Israel, both of whom have served in the Knesset, and, and with the words may they be banished. Right. Um, So this is um, this is this is it's a frightening, frightening time to be a Palestinian in Israel.
1: After the break, what does this new government mean for the U.S.? Reading your writing, you don't seem particularly surprised by the political victories here. You basically seem to say that they reflect a rightward shift that's been ongoing in Israel. But I can hear in your voice that even if this election outcome wasn't surprising to you, it was still alarming. And I wonder wonder if you think other people are paying as close attention and thinking about it in the way that you are. In terms of being
0: a surprised, I would say this. I think one of the things that the Trump experience has really shown me is that there are things that are things that have happened in the past, even in the deep past of a country's history, remain in its political DNA. And if they are not dealt with, if if there's not some kind of historical reckoning and a genuine effort to face the past and change they will tend to return. Um, and so Trump is the recurrence of a white supremacist politics that has very, very deep roots in the United States. And if you think about Itamar ben that way, again, in a country that was formed through mass expulsion of Palestinians in a country that held even its Palestinian citizens under military law for the, for the first 18 years of its creation, um, and then had another mass expulsion of Palestinians in 1967 when it took over the West Bank. Is it really a surprise that in a country that has not re- confronted and tried to make right those historical injustices and try to create a different kind of political system based on equality. Is it really surprising that those kind of ideas would return?
1: Can we talk about the reaction to all this from Palestinians?
0: I don't think I can. I'm equipped to speak for Palestinians.
1: You must have Palestinian colleagues, though, who you reached out to in the days since the election just to check in, say hello. I wonder what they're telling you.
0: I mean. I have a, a friend named Isa Amro, an extraordinary man, um, a nonviolent human rights activist in Chevron, which is literally, I mean, it's the Mississippi, of the West Bank. Well, in fact, Itamar Ben Givir lives in that settlement in Hebron. I've seen the conditions in which Isa lives uh, without any basic rights. And now Isa is under military order, um, which means that nobody can go in his home except for him. And there's no due process for you. you can change it because you're not a citizen. You can't vote. You the government is not accountable to you. And now I think about Isa today, as we get as we interview this, being under military order in with a government that is going to be led by some of these people who already make his life a living hell, Itamar ben gavir and his friends, and I'm terrified for him.
1: So what does the US do now? I mean, support for Israel has been ingrained in US politics for decades. There have been some rumblings that oh, maybe US politicians won't meet with some of the more extreme members of Netanyahu's coalition government. I'm not sure what kind of difference that would make. And I'm not sure how much stomach there is to turn around our, you know, relationship with Israel in some way or, or get more involved than we are now.
0: In some ways, it's not a question of us getting more involved. It's it's a question of whether we want to be funding this. Because the United States gives more than $3 billion in essentially unconditional military aid uh, to Israel. And so... I think the question that people should be asking the Biden administration, an administration that supposedly is making the struggle for global global democracy kind of central to its mission is, is this actually consistent with the principles you claim to believe in? Uh, is this a good use of U.S. taxpayer money?
1: Yeah. That brings me back to one more thing, which is American Jews. You are one. And I, I feel like we're in this moment where it's possible that American Judaism, people who identify as Jewish, their relationship with Israel may change. But maybe you don't think that's going to happen. And I'm a little bit curious what you think, because I know that you've faced pushback from other people in your faith for some of your views.
0: Yes. I think the American Jewish organizational leadership is pretty much locked in in the position that they hold, which is essentially a, a, a hear no evil position vis-a-vis the Israeli government. And I think there are a lot of American Jews who don't hold that those views, but they don't necessarily wield a lot of influence. Um, what I would like American Jews to recognize is that I believe that, that we cannot coherently and effectively and credibly fight against white supremacy, white Christian supremacy in the United States, which I think many Jews do recognize, threatens American Jews, and simultaneously defend Jewish supremacy in Israel, that the two principles are actually in conflict, and that it turns out, one of the things that I think we found, we've found, seen very clearly this year, is that many of the greatest admirers of Jewish supremacy in Israel are the very people who support a white Christian supremacy in the United States that Jews know in our bones is not good for us as a small and conspicuous minority. So the case I would like to make is that we can't have it both ways. I believe that our best ethical traditions and our own very safety lies with struggling for and clinging to the principle of human equality, but we have to do it everywhere. And if we make an exception for Israel, I believe we are unknowingly opening the door for the very dangerous forces that want to also have that exception for the United States and for Hungary and for Poland and for France and for a lot of places where group ethnic supremacy is dangerous for Jews. And we need to be consistent about that.
1: Peter Beinart, thank you so much for hopping on the line with me. I'm grateful.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Peter Beinart is the editor-at-large at at Jewish Currents. In the days since the election, some of Israel's newest leaders have tried to temper some of their more extreme language. In a speech last week, Itamar Ben-Gavir clarified that he does not want to expel all Palestinians from Israel, just the terrorists. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next the best way to support our work is to join Slate+. Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. The show is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Colton Salas. We're led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I will be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. Catch you then.